Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. Well, good morning. It's a blessing to be here this morning. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Philippians, in chapter 3. Philippians, chapter 3, this morning. I want to say a big thank you to Pastor Phelps for giving me the opportunity to speak this morning. Andy was originally scheduled to speak, and then he said, well, Andy's preached here plenty of times. I'll let Caleb have the opportunity. So I said, thank you. This is a new opportunity for me. Uh, the other, only other time that I've ever spoke in a morning service at a church uh, was at my home church, and it was to about 75 people. I think it's safe to say there's more people here today. And uh, so I'm excited about this opportunity and very thankful for it, and I hope it's a blessing to you this morning. Uh, my desire is to be encouraging to you. My desire is to be able to uh, give you a blessing this morning from God's Word, something that God has used in my life. I hope it's something that God can use in yours as well. Philippians chapter 3, it's not an incredibly long chapter, so I'm going to read the entire thing, and I think it's going to help us um, as we look into the text, uh, the rest of the message. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision, For we are the circumcision, which worship God in the spirit, and rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath, whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, and touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless." But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness righteousness which is of God, by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. And not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. But this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark, For the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore as many as be perfect be thus minded. And if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. Brethren, be followers together of me. And mark them which walk, so as ye have us for an example. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able to subdue all things unto himself. Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to look into your word this morning, Would you receive the honor and glory in all the things that are said 
and all the uh, truths that are pulled out of this text, I pray that you would receive the honor and glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm speaking this morning on this topic, Jesus, the object of our joy. Jesus, the object of our joy. I don't know about you, but I am a huge fan of traditions, specifically family traditions. Growing up, I can remember many family traditions that we had in our household, specifically around the holiday seasons. For instance, uh, during Thanksgiving time, many, uh, many years in a row, we would have this family tradition of playing the annual turkey bowl. And uh, so usually it was my dad, my mom, and the three younger siblings against me, my brother, and the uh, three middle siblings. And we had a ton of fun playing the annual turkey bowl. Uh, I think of some of the traditions that we had during the Christmas season as well, whether that was watching movies together as a family, uh, whether that was uh, baking Christmas cookies together, or uh, doing all sorts of different family traditions during that time. I love uh, family traditions. On the flip side, though, there are some family traditions that I wish my family would forget about. And uh, one of those specifically uh, is the annual watching of A Charlie Brown Christmas. I'm assuming by the chuckles in the audience that most of you have seen that before. And uh, if you've watched Charlie Brown Christmas, you only really need to watch it once to get the gist of the story, trust me. Um, there's not a whole lot of uh, engaging content in that movie, okay? But every year, the topic comes around and someone says, hey, let's watch Charlie Brown Christmas uh, for, uh, you know, the tradition, to keep the tradition alive. And every year, there's uh, very aggressive animated positions from both sides. Some say, yeah, hang on to that tradition. Other, uh, other sides are saying, nah, let's not watch it. And uh, so, a couple months ago, I went home for Christmas, and sure enough, uh, that annual tradition was brought up. Someone said, why don't we watch Charlie Brown Christmas? And uh, I would say the vast majority in our family said, let's not watch it. Um, but there were a couple that argued very strongly for it, and eventually Dad, who has the final vote, said, let's put it on. And so we watched Charlie Brown Christmas once again this past year. And I realized something after watching it this year, and that is this, that Charlie Brown is arguably one of the most depressing characters to ever grace <laughs> the television screen. I mean, the guy is just a depressing individual. Everything is wrong, and nothing goes right for him. He struggles to make friends. I mean, the guy is just a loser. In fact, the entire movie of A Charlie Brown Christmas is dedicated to Charlie Brown trying to get into the Christmas spirit. And his friend Linus eventually looks at him and says, Charlie Brown, you're the only person I know who can take a wonderful season like Christmas and turn it into a problem. Maybe you are here today and you know someone that has the Charlie Brown complex. Or maybe you're that person yourself. Everything's doom and gloom, everything's depressing, everything is sad, um, and you have that Charlie Brown complex. Charlie Brown also reminds me of another cartoon character that I grew up watching, the character of Eeyore off of Winnie the Pooh. Once again, another character that uh, we would say is not exactly uplifting to watch. Here are a couple of my favorite uh, Eeyore quotes. He said this, I was so upset I forgot to be happy. His friends once built him a house, and so Eeyore says this, not much of a house, just right for not much of a donkey. And this is my favorite one, don't worry about me, go home and enjoy yourself, I'll stay here and be miserable. <laughs> friends, people in the world today, have you ever considered this, people in the world today seem to be constantly chasing happiness, and yet, it would seem that we are living in an increasingly unhappy, joyless world. Did you know that recent statistics say that more than 700,000 people die to suicide every single year? And you also know that recent statistics show that about 21 million adults have experienced a major depressive episode 
in their life. Friend, we live in an unhappy world. And we come to Philippians in chapter 3, and the very first thing that Paul states in this chapter is, uh, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And we would remember that when Paul writes this uh, book of Philippians, he's writing at a time when he is in prison. The book of Philippians is part of that genre of literature in the Bible that we would consider the prison epistles. Those books of the Bible that were written during Paul's time and prison. Not only that, Paul is living with very much uh, the thought of death in front of him. In chapter 1, he states this, I'm in a strait betwixt two. I'm in a conflict, having a desire to depart and to be with God, and also having a desire to, to stay here on earth with you. He realizes that death is very much a possibility in front of him. And so we would say that when Paul writes the book of Philippians, not much is going right in his life. He's in prison, facing the possibility of death. We could say Paul's glories days are very much behind him, and yet he writes the book of Philippians, and one of its chief characteristics, one of the book's chief characteristics is that it is a joy-filled book. The term joy and rejoicing comes up multiple times throughout the book. And we would ask ourselves the question, how was Paul able to have this kind of joy, this kind of settledness, this kind of assurance in life when everything around him seemed to be going so bad? I can assure you today, friend, that God wants you to be a joyful person just like Paul was despite his unfortunate circumstances. Notice I didn't say that God wants you to be just a happy person because happiness is based on your circumstances. Joy is based on a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And if you have that kind of joy, if you have that relationship with Jesus Christ, you can walk through life and have the joy that only God can give because your joy is not bound up in what happens to you but in who is walking through life with you. You too, friend, can have the joy that Paul had in whatever season of life God has you in, but there are some realities that were true of Paul's life that I believe he gives us in this passage that need to be true of your life as well. And so this morning I want to present to you just three realities that were true of Paul's life that can be true of your life as well. The first one here is Jesus is the focus of our faith. Jesus was the focus of Paul's faith. And Jesus, if we're going to be a joyful person, Jesus must be the focus of our faith as well. There's a couple of statements that Paul makes in the first 11 verses of this third chapter in Philippians that add to this uh, proposition that Jesus was the focus of Paul's faith. In verse 2, look at it with me, he says, Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. But Paul is saying, hey, Jesus is the focus of my faith. And he says, first of all, my faith is not wrapped up in the Judaizers' requirements. Paul is writing here in, in, in chapter 3, verse 2, and he says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. He's calling out a specific group of heretics that were going around during this time known as the Judaizers. And these opponents of the gospel were specifically saying that in order to be saved, you not only had to believe in Jesus Christ, but you also had to follow somewhat of the uh, Old Testament law code in order to be saved. And Paul is going to call these men out and say, hey, my faith is not bound up in what these men say. My faith is not bound up in what their opinions are for salvation. My faith is wrapped up in Jesus Christ. In verse 2, he says, beware of dogs. He uses a couple of descriptive words to describe these men. He says, first of all, beware of dogs. And one commentator I read said this is not a, a statement to the local policeman, or uh, I'm sorry, to the local uh, mailman. 
Uh, he's not calling out and saying, hey, uh, uh, hey these uh, little lap animals, just watch out for them as they, as they bark at you. No, when he's talking about dogs here, he's talking about wild, vicious, homeless beasts that would have rummaged the streets and they would have attacked uh, innocent passerbys as they were going through the, through the streets. And Paul says, hey, watch out for these guys. These guys, these heretics of the gospel, are acting like these vicious, wild animals. Don't let your faith be wrapped up in their requirements. He also calls them evil workers. And literally, that means those that work evil things. He also calls them the concision. Literally, those that cut up the flesh. Because the Judaizers strongly emphasized circumcision as that external right whereby you gained a right standing and a right relationship with God. The Judaizers said that if you wanted to be saved, if you wanted to have right acceptance with God, then you had to be circumcised. And Paul is going to argue, not just here but elsewhere in his writings, that physical circumcision was not necessary for a right standing before God. Rather, the true circumcision is that of the heart, what God has done in the heart. In fact, this debate, whether or not circumcision was required for salvation or not, was something that the early church had to wrestle with and grapple with as they came into being. If you have your Bibles, turn back real quickly to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. The early church wrestled with this concept of whether or not circumcision was necessary for salvation. And they're going to meet at the Jerusalem Council. And in Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 1, we're going to read a little bit about this problem that they were addressing. The Bible says in Acts 15 verse 1, Certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. Now jump over to verse 5. The Bible says, But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying, that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider of this matter. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. And now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved even as they. Peter says, hey, listen, salvation is not by what you do on the outside. Salvation is only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, my faith is not wrapped up in what these Judaizers say that I should do. It's wrapped up in what Jesus Christ has done. He says, he warns them not to elevate the Judaizers' requirements above what they know to be true from Scripture, above what Christ has already done on the cross. And this is a danger that I think we face, to elevate man's opinions over what Scripture says. When I was about 12 years old, our family went sledding on a certain Saturday. We had gotten some snow, much like we did the other day. And so my dad said, hey, um, let's go sledding. And the specific hill that we enjoyed going to the, mo the most was a, a rather narrow hill, and uh, so it didn't have much room on either side, and it was lined with trees on both sides. And I can remember us, you know, packing up that morning. My mom stayed back that day. My dad took all six of us kids to go sledding. And so he had a rule that day. He said, hey, when you go sledding, 
uh, the person that has just gone down, don't let anybody go down behind them until the person that has gone down has gotten off the sled and gotten out of the way. Because you can pick up some serious speed going down this hill and it could be dangerous. And so my dad took uh, three of my sisters down on, on a sled and they, they went down the hill, picked up some good speed. And just as they left, my brother, who was about five or six at the time, started whining and complaining and saying, hey, Caleb, push me down the hill. And I was about 10 years old at the time, and I knew what my dad had said. And uh, instead of listening to what my dad had said, I bought the lie. I listened to my brother, and I pushed him down the hill. But I did something uh, that was, uh, was kind of stupid on my end. I was only 10 at the time. I angled him away from my dad's sled, thinking that was going to solve the problem. But as you remember, this hill is lined with trees on both sides. And so I gave him a good shove off the top of the hill, and he was pointing right at the trees. And I watched in horror as he is careening down this huge hill, picking up tons of speed, heading straight for a tree. Thankfully, my dad saw what was happening in time and sprinted over and kicked his sled out of the way at the last second because my brother had no clue what was going on. And he saved him from uh, getting in trouble. I know it's not a perfect illustration, but let me draw out a specific point of application from this. When we elevate the opinions of other people above what we know to be true, we're headed for disaster. And the Bible says here, uh, Paul says here, hey, listen, the Judaizers have their, have their requirements here, and I'm not elevating their requirements, their outward external uh, uh, requirements to the level of Scripture. I'm not going to give them that ability. And Paul says, hey, listen, my faith is not in the Judaizers' requirements. Jesus is truly the focus of my faith. But not only that, uh, Paul says, hey, listen, Jesus is the focus of my faith, and it's not in the Jewish religion. Look at verse 4 with me. Paul says, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath, whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Paul begins to list off his, uh, his uh, biography here, all the things that he's accomplished in the Jewish religion. In verse 5 he says, He was circumcised the eighth day. He was of the stock of Israel. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was a Pharisee. He says, hey, I was zealous to the point of persecuting the church. I was righteous to the point of being faultless. Paul's saying, hey, listen, if you want the poster boy for the Jewish religion, that's me. I've done it all, and I've seen it all. And Paul's going to explain here, hey, listen, my faith's not wrapped up in my religion. My faith's not wrapped up in all these things that I've done as a part of the Jewish religion. He explains that what he had once considered to be an advantage in his spiritual progress, he now considered a liability. Look at verse 7 with me. He says, but what things were gained to me, those things that I used to look at and say, yes, this is uh, essential for salvation, he says, hey, those I counted lost for Christ. Those I counted lost for Christ. Paul refused to put his faith in his performance in the Jewish religion. Instead, he learned that he needed to put his faith in Jesus Christ himself. And can I stop here and make a point of application, friend, that just as, uh, just as Paul's religion could not save him back in, in Bible times, so your religion today cannot save you. If you're here today and you think that you're going to heaven simply because you attend church and you do all the right things, and you can list off an impressive uh, a biography of your life as well, of all the things that you've accomplished for God, but you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I hate to say it, friend, but it's true. You are not saved. You need Jesus Christ as your Savior. 
And that leads us to our next statement that Paul's faith was not in the Judaizers' requirements. It was not in the Jewish religion. Paul's faith was in Jesus' righteousness. Look at verse 8 with me. He says, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Paul says, hey, listen, I'm stopping uh, trusting all of my merits. It's not in the Judaizers, what they think. It's not in what I've accomplished in my religion. My faith is in Christ and Christ alone and in his righteousness that's been credited to my account. We say, why did Paul do this? What was Paul's motivation for doing this? He gives us that in verse 8. He says, for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. As a Jew and as a former Pharisee, uh, Paul would have had an expansive intellectual knowledge of God, the law, and even the coming Messiah. And yet, he says, hey, this wasn't a personal knowledge. This was, there was nothing personal about this. It was just intellectual. And he says, I've abandoned all of this. Why? For the personal knowledge of Jesus Christ. Additionally, in verse 9, Paul explains that he wants the righteousness that only Christ can give. He says, to be found in him, that is Jesus Christ, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Paul explains that he wants the righteousness that only Christ can give. And as a Pharisee, being righteous, holding the law, being faultless was a supreme goal. But he realized that he was unable to completely reach that goal. And so instead of pursuing that any longer, Paul says, I'm abandoning this entire self-righteousness and I'm replacing it with Christ's righteousness instead. And what did he gain as a result of that? Well, verse 10 is going to tell us, Paul says, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. Fellowship with Christ. Christ lives in Paul as a result of him abandoning his works righteousness and holding on to the righteous, righteousness which only Christ can give. Jesus was everything to Paul. He realized, hey, it's not about all the things on the outside. It's not about all the things that I've, that I've done. It's not about how I look. It's not about what people think of me. It's not about what my church thinks of me or how well I have everybody fooled. It's about what Christ has done and what I have believed about that. Is it true of my life? Do I have a personal, intimate knowledge? It's not about the outside. It's about the inside of our hearts. My wife was telling me recently about a story that she had growing up. They were at the, uh, they had a the family in their church, and they had a pretty expansive garden. And uh, this garden, they grew some watermelons. And so one day, uh, they invited my wife's family over and said, hey, you, you want to pick up a couple watermelons? So they gave them a couple watermelons. And these were, you know, a good-sized watermelon, she said. They, they grabbed a couple of them. They took them home. Uh, they put them up on the counter. They took one off the counter. They sliced into it and uh, ate some of that watermelon. It was, it was really good. And then obviously they weren't going to eat them all, so they left a couple of them uh, stay up on the, on the counter for a couple of days. My wife said that they were walking around the house eventually, uh, one of the days following that. And uh, she said all of a sudden uh, they heard this pop in the pantry and uh, what sounded like rushing water. And that watermelon had rotted on the inside, filled with all those gases and nastiness, and it exploded out the rind. And it was gushing everywhere. She said the mess was annoying. It was awful. She said the smell was awful because it had rotted from the inside out and it was just gushing all watermelon guts all over the pantry. 
And friend, just like they looked at that watermelon, they picked it up and they said, yeah, it looks pretty good on the outside. But there was something on the inside that was rotting away. There was something on the inside that was not accounted for. And I'm here to say today that if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you need that inside worked on first. You need Jesus to be the focus of your faith, not the outside. It's not about how well you look on the outside. It's not about how good uh, you look to other people. You need the inside addressed. Jesus' righteousness applied to you. A sinner, have you been counting on your polished outside to make you right before God? A Christian, have you been polishing up the outside of your life to the neglect of the inside? Paul says, hey, Jesus is the focus of my faith, not my works, not my religion, not anything else, only Jesus Christ. Hey, friends, if we want to be a joyful people, then Jesus has to be the focus of our faith. And secondly, we see that Jesus is the purpose for our persevering. Jesus is the purpose for our persevering. That's what it was for Paul. Look at verse 12 with me of chapter 3. Paul says, not as though I had already attained, either already perfect. Paul's saying, hey, listen, I know, um, I know you might think that I've arrived spiritually based on all the things I just told you in verses 8 through 11, but he says, I haven't arrived spiritually, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Jesus Christ. Paul had an emphasis on progress in verse 12. And I think if we want to be a joyful people, then we have to have an emphasis on progress in our life. Paul recognizes here, he says, hey, listen, I haven't arrived spiritually. I'm not perfect. I don't want you to think that I've cracked the code of spiritual living. I don't want you to think that I've somehow uh, fallen into some trance and all of a sudden I don't need any help in my spiritual life anymore. He says, listen, I recognize and I understand that my spiritual life is a progression. Can I make this point, friend, that truly humble people realize that they have not arrived spiritually. And Paul obviously realizes that in this verse. He says, I have not attained. I have not arrived. I have not come to the place where I figured life out, spiritually speaking. But I do follow after, he says. Paul is able to keep going and to continue on in his spiritual life despite a lack of perfection. Some people give up pursuing God because they aren't perfect at it. And I think on the, on the flip side, some people think that they have arrived spiritually and so they give up pursuing God. Being a humble person uh, is someone who says, I haven't arrived spiritually and I'm still pursuing God. I recognize that there's still things that God is working on in my life. I recognize that God still has work to do in my life, ways to grow me. The flip side is true as well. Immature people oftentimes think that they have arrived, while mature people, or people that think that they have arrived spiritually, oftentimes don't seek the Lord. Paul had an emphasis on progression. But he also had an earnest pursuit. Paul says, hey, listen, I follow after. I am pursuing Jesus Christ. And he gives us somewhat of a formula in verses 13 through 14 of how he's pursuing Christ. In verse 13, he says, brethren, I count not myself of apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul gives us somewhat of a formula here for how he is pursuing Jesus Christ. He says, first of all, the first part of that equation is, I'm going to forget the things that are behind. And this forgetting is not just not remembering. This forgetting is not allowing oneself to be influenced by what has happened in your past. And Paul says, hey, forgetting those things which are behind, I'm pressing toward the mark. We would stop and ask ourselves the question, what is it that Paul 
is having to forget. Well, step inside Paul's shoes for just a second and imagine laying in your bed at night and hearing the screams of the people that you had tortured in the name of religion. Imagine laying in your bed at night if you were the Apostle Paul and those images replaying in your mind of families being ripped apart, of people that he had tortured, the screams and the cries of those that he had tortured all in the name of religion because he thought he was doing what was right. Imagine those kinds of things and yet Paul says, hey, forgetting those things which are behind. I'm not allowing the guilt, the shame, the regret of the past to influence my future. Instead, I'm going on for the Lord. I think there's another thing that, we, that Paul might have had to forget, and that is his past successes. Not just his past failures, but his past successes. Remember, we said that this is not being influenced by what has happened previously to us. Instead, it's reaching forth into the things which are before. And imagine Paul, he had much to brag about post-salvation. All the people he had led to the Lord, all the churches he had started, all the missionary journeys he had taken, all of the beatings that he had took and yet physically kept going. And he had a lot to say, hey, I'm, I'm pretty big stuff. And yet Paul says, hey, forgetting the things that are behind. And friend, I would submit to you today that just as wrong as it is to live in the guilt and the shame of the past, I think it's equally as bad to live uh, comfortable with what the success is that you've had in your past and not seek more for the Lord. And Paul says, hey, I'm reaching for more. God, give me more. I want to have more. I want to be more faithful. And he says, first of all, forgetting those things which are behind, but then secondly, reaching forth unto those things which are before. The imagery is here uh, of that of a runner who is leaning forward in a race to gain the advantage at the last second, reaching his body over the finish line in order to gain that advantage. And Paul is saying, hey God, I want more. I'm reaching more out towards you. I'm reaching towards more in my spiritual life. A friend, do you want more? Are you reaching out and stretching and asking God, God, I want more in my life? I want to do more for you. Paul says, hey, all of this, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forth in the things which are before, I press toward the mark. He's pursuing something. The Greeks use this term press to refer to a hunter pursuing his prey. And Paul's saying, hey, the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, that reward that's in the future, I'm pressing towards that. I'm earnestly pursuing those things. And friend, do you have Jesus as the purpose for your persevering? It was for Paul. He said, because of what Jesus has done, because of the reward that's in front of me, because of what he's done in my life spiritually, I'm pressing toward the mark. I'm reaching forth. I'm stretching for more. I'm asking God to give me more. We, if we want to be a joyful people today, then we not only need to take Jesus as the focus of our faith, but we also need to have him as the purpose for our persevering. Paul's going to give us one final thing in this, uh, in this chapter of what allows him to have this joy that he experiences, and that is Jesus is our hope for heaven. It was obviously for Paul. Look at verse 20, I'm sorry, back up to verse 15 through 21. It says, let us therefore as many as be perfect, be thus minded, and if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. Paul is arguing for unity within the church, unity within the body, and then he says in verse 17, Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk, so as ye have us for an example. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is, in, is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. And then he says in verse 20, For our conversation is in heaven, 
from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul had an expected citizenship. He says in verse 20, our conversation is in heaven. The term that Paul uses here for conversation is a term that we get our English word for politics. In other words, Paul is saying uh, that this is, has, has, to, has to do with the way that one conducts himself as a citizen of a country. And so Paul is saying, hey, our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And when Paul says this, living like the citizen of another country, the Philippian believers would have gotten this. You see, Philippi was a part of a Roman colony on a foreign land, some 800 miles away from the city of Rome. And so when Paul says, hey, live like the citizens of another country, the Philippian believers would have been like, oh yeah, we know all about that. We're supposed to abide under Roman law. We're supposed to live like uh, the Romans do and and obey all of their commands, even though uh, we are some 800 miles away from the city of Rome. And Paul says, live like the citizens of another country. Paul urges the Philippian believers not to live for this world. He says in verses 17 through 19, he gives a description of those uh, that are uh, propagating this teaching of living all for the moment, living for this earth and this earth alone. He gives a bit of a description of them. He says, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory is in their shame, they mind earthly things. Hey friend, these are fleshly, indulgent, self-centered, empty people. And Paul says, hey, Jesus is the hope of my heaven because I have an expected citizenship one day. I'm going to live like that person. I'm going to live like a citizen of heaven. Friend, do you live like the citizen of another country? Or do you live like this life is your best life? Songwriters have majored on this theme of living for eternity and not just for this world. Songwriter said, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me with heaven's open door and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Another songwriter put it this way, make me a stranger on earth, dear Savior. Make me a stranger more like thee. Help me keep my focus on heavenly treasures and not on earthly things may it be. Lord, lead me onward as a pilgrim, bound for heaven, never to roam. Make me a stranger on earth, dear Savior, till I see my heavenly home. Do you live like a citizen of heaven, or do you live like a citizen of the earth? Paul not only had an expected citizenship, Paul also had an expected change. In verse 21 he says, Who shall change our vile body? That is, Jesus. Jesus will change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Paul anticipates the change that his body is going to undergo one day in glory. He describes his current body as that which is vile, that which is lowly or of low estate. And he contrasts that vile body with the glorious body that he will one day receive in heaven. And friend, we have something to look forward to in heaven because this body, this earth, is not our home. Paul says he's looking out for Jesus. He's waiting for Jesus. He's expecting that because he's going to change this body and give us a new glorified body. Are you frustrated today, friends, with your earthly citizenship? Do you long for the day when your body no longer has the aches, the pains, the heartaches, the sickness, the death, the disease? Then join Paul in taking Jesus as your hope for heaven. And look forward to the day that he's going to transform your current earthly vile body into that glorious body that we'll call our heavenly home one day. Paul had Jesus as the focus of his faith. 
Paul had Jesus as the purpose for his persevering. And Paul had Jesus as his hope for heaven. And friends, if we want to be a joyful person living in the world today, then these three realities need to be true in our lives as well. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast.